Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desire to delight You. To praise You. To respond to this Gospel that has done such a unique and powerful thing. Both in the world and in front of our eyes as Your followers. Shape and conform us. Reveal to us those depths of peace and those heights of love. We give you thanks for this season and the uniqueness of it. I pray that, as you say many times in Luke, that our hearts would be stirred to wonder at these stories that we have read uh, probably many times. But we pray for fresh eyes, for fresh perspective this morning from your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how we wait depends on how we hope. If you have a kind of a fleeting conversation with a, a friend about something that might happen and you, if it works out and you briefly talk and those kind of plans don't contain a lot of hope. You maybe wait around five minutes, but then you move on. You're not broken up about it. The expectations are low. But for firm plans, when our hearts are full of expectation, when the implications are enormous, waiting can be weighty and hopeful. Like a husband at the altar waiting for his bride to turn the corner and walk down to join him. He waits with a kind of certainty and confidence and a a kind of delight and trembling that anticipates what's to come. How we hope affects how we wait. And you and I, we live on hope. The scriptures say that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And so you could even say that sin is what we do when we lack an assurance of things hoped for. We exchange what seem like unrealistic hopes of the gospel for something more tangible and reachable and touchable. So either way, we're chasing hopes, true or false. Test this theory of mine this morning by doing an inventory of your heart. What are you hoping in? Like today, what are your hopes? What are your hopes for this Christmas season? Maybe it's a slower holiday season. Maybe it's peace in your family. Maybe it's a bonus at work. Maybe it's that the girl would call. Maybe we're a mixture of hopes, I'm sure. Well, hoping and waiting are partners, and so how is that going? Are you confident in your hope? Or is it like a Hail Mary hope that you're not really sure is going to come to fruition? And so it's hard to hope and it's hard to wait. Well, how do we as followers of Christ, how do we hope differently? How might we look into the future with high hope and expectation? Luke 1 is a very long chapter and it's full of waiting. <laughs> Zechariah and Elizabeth, if you remember, have waited seemingly in vain for a child. And they both probably would have told you before this angelic visit that the waiting was over and it was a done deal. But then this angel appears to Zechariah in this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity in the temple. And if you turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 11, let's just remember what happened there. Luke 1.11, it says, And there appeared to him at the, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. 
And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Skip down to 18, Zechariah's response. He said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So this priest goes home unable to speak, and sure enough, in time, his elderly wife conceives. Then there's more waiting, right? They wait for the baby to come to term, unable to have a single conversation about the bizarre events that are happening in their lives. And this couple is waiting in the midst of a nation that is also aching with hope. Right? For centuries, they were waiting for Messiah, waiting more instructions, more specifics, more details, more something. God was still active, but in the way that Zechariah was, quiet and deliberate. The promises of God, they seemed to loiter and, and linger. and All the while, Rome just kept oppressing and taxing and this encroaching godly, godlessness. These false messiahs would come along and hopes would spike and then crash. And so their hopes were diminished and the waiting was hard. But then these things start happening and this hope starts stirring. There's talk in the town. Elizabeth, with with her incredible kind of piecemeal retelling of this angelic visitation, and she's been pregnant for nine months. This girl Mary visits, adding even more confusion to the situation. But this old woman had done it. She had gotten to the end of this pregnancy. Her hopes would be here soon. Look with me in verse 57 of chapter 1 where we start our text for the morning. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all of the neighbors. And all the things were talked about about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Luke organizes this part of our section. We'll go over Zechariah's song in a minute. But he organizes this in a really masterful way. You've noticed some of the repetition, maybe, from the earlier section with the angelic visit with Zechariah with the things that we read. And that's intentional because his goal in this little part is to help the listener see that God fulfills his promise to this couple in this present scene. We're not sure how widespread the news was in their community, uh, but as readers of this gospel, we know what went down in that temple. We know it was promised, right? And this is an important step for the audience because of what's coming later and what Zechariah will sing about. But note how Luke goes out of his way to show how God's promises were fulfilled. In 57, Elizabeth gives birth to a son. We should not overlook this. We should not just keep, I mean, 
when you when you have time, which you probably don't during this holiday season, but take 30 seconds and Google oldest you know, woman to give birth. There's some bizarre pictures of, of 70-year-old women, right, holding newborn babies. And, and just the contrast of that is so strange. It almost seems like a joke. It's like this is not what normally happens. This is odd. And sure enough, Elizabeth, a barren elderly woman, gives birth to a child. So baby boy, boy is born, right? So we check that one off. And then in 58, you'll notice that her neighbors, everyone's rejoicing. Why? Because of God's mercy. Earlier in chapter 1 and verse 25, Elizabeth says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, or when he concerned himself with me, when he showed me favor to take away my reproach among people. There was a stigma about this, and the community around her recognized that God had moved towards her in pity. And they're just delighted. They're rejoicing. The boy was actually born. And you remember, this is what the angel said would happen. That little detail about the community rejoicing around her. So that's another check mark for Luke. In 59 through 63, we see that against convention, this old couple names this child something odd. In obedience to the angel and God's instruction, they named the boy John. But put yourself in this scene. Things are proceeding as normal. Everyone is excited. And and it even talks about the community as being involved in the naming of this child, which to us is very odd, right? It's like this secret thing. No one knows. No one gets to have any input on. You just accept and smile and nod. And not so here. Like, this this group is fully expecting this child to be named Zechariah or someone in their family line. There's only a few names on the list, which would have been great to not have to think about the thousands of names. But anyway, this is what they were they were jazzed about. They were anticipating it. Everyone knew what was coming. And then Elizabeth says, No, actually we're gonna we're gonna call him John. Which means God is gracious. And everyone's Puzzled enough, maybe feeling a little offended for Zechariah, so they actually consult the guy who can't speak and say, Zechariah, weigh in on this, because Elizabeth apparently missed the cue. She doesn't understand what's going on. So surely, step in. And and he scribbles out on his probably little wax tablet. His name is John. Weird. They obey the instructions of this angel to the shock of the community around them. And things get even weirder. As soon as they do that, This guy, Zechariah, who hasn't talked for more than nine months, just like erupts in praise to God. We'll we'll read in a minute. And you remember, that check mark was the final one because the angel said, as soon as all these things come to pass, he'll be able to speak. And sure enough, they'd gotten used to silent Zechariah, right? He'd gotten good at communicating through his little wax tablet thing. But immediately, because the Lord said this is what would happen. And so immediately, when it does, he speaks. How ironic that the words out of the mouth of a disobedient mute priest were likely the words prophesied, right? They're they're in Scripture. He had a lot of time to think what he was going to say. So his condition is healed, and that's another check mark. So we've got four or five as the reader's going along like, yeah, this is happening exactly like... The angel said it would. As strange as the scene is with a newborn baby lying on the chest of an elderly woman. 
As strange as the name process was, and it was weird that Zechariah is exploding in praise. And so there's this ominous sense that God is doing something in this very scene. Like here and now, God is moving. And so you see kind of the murmuring and the, it's, it's spreading into the hills of Judea and people are saying, oh yeah, I remember months ago when there was this talk about she, this older woman got pregnant and now it's coming around again and it actually happened. And so it raises this question, this strategic question that Luke asks that he will allow Zechariah to answer. And that's the question, who will this child be? What is going on with this family? It raises the stakes. It raises this question that Zechariah is going to come in full speed and answer. So we see God's fulfillment in the present moment to this old couple. But then we hear Zechariah, and he really has two different verses in his song. So we'll break it up. Break up the lyrics in, in two chunks. Okay, The first chunk, uh, first verse is in verses 67 through 75. Here's what he says. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. In the first verse, the Spirit loosened Zechariah's tongue to bless God for his merciful deliverance of Israel in the past. We saw God fulfill his word in the present, and now Zechariah is going to turn us to history and to say, God has done this before. It starts off in 67, what a great thing to, to have said about you, right? He doesn't start off with, woe is me, and you'll never believe the story, and I can't believe what happened. And What does he say? Out of the gate, he prophesies under the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit about God's greatness. He wants to bless him. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? Why does he praise him? He gets specific, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is language for God has graciously drawn near and been kind to his people. God's visits are not always that way. Sometimes God visits his people in judgment, right? And discipline and correction. But in this case, he's visiting to, to redeem and to rescue like he visited Sarah in Genesis 21 when she conceived in old age. Or like Joseph said in Genesis 50, he says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. Or how God visited the people of Israel when they were under oppression in Egypt to see their affliction. This is what it, it doesn't just mean God dropped by like, you know, 20 minutes at the house to say hello. It's like when he's, things change when God visits his people. It makes an impact, a redemptive one. I think, okay, well, what did that visit involve? It says, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. God raised up a person. Like he's done a thousand times before, right? A prophet, a priest, a king. This is how God's deliverance is going to come. A, a horn of salvation. You think, what is that referring to? A horn is a picture of power and strength. And if you didn't see a horn and weren't able to hold it in your hands, it, was, it meant 
you were seeing a horn on an animal that was about to gore you, right? And so they'd put horns on helmets and everything to kind of signify strength. But what that's referring to is, is appropriate because this person, this raised up one, is from the house of David, who is a king, who was promised there would be a king to follow. And so God's visit is going to involve raising up a person to deliver a king, a strong deliverer from the throne of David. It says also, this isn't like a new idea. It says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. This was planned. This was premeditated. And what, what, what would raising up that person do? That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This is a conqueror. This is a political savior. This is, this is not um, a deliverance that's, that's theoretical. This is on the grounds like Romans, Babylonians, Assyrians kind of stuff. Okay? This is a conquering Davidic king. The Lord's hand is on this savior to deliver them out of the hand of their enemies and Israel saw this in a lot of short-term ways, right? They'd raise up a judge, and then they'd defeat the bad guys, and then they'd be restored, and then they'd raise up a king, and then there'd be a bad king, and then there'd be discipline, and raise them. So this is happening a lot. But this is a different deal. This one, this, this Davidic king had a definitive victory. His, his, his victory would be extensive, okay? And you think, well... That, that's not exactly what happened when Jesus came, right? And that's what their ex, this is part of their expectation, right? Acts 1, Lord, is this the time that you're going to deliver us? Later on, and you can look at it later in Luke 19, Jesus describes a scene where they're going to be surrounded by their enemies. And they're going to be destroyed to the point that one stone is not going to be on top of another And he says that the reason that that devastation will come to Israel is because they did not know the time of his visitation. They didn't acknowledge him. They didn't honor him. They didn't receive their Messiah. They rejected him. And so this political deliverance is going to come in the future at another time. But for Zechariah, it's very much a part of God's faithfulness and very much a part of his promise. So, where are we? He's praising God. Why? Because God has come near to his people. How did he do that? He brought this king deliverer who was going to conquer their enemies, like the prophet said. Why would God do this? Why would God get involved in this way at all? I mean, God doesn't have to make promises to us, right? We're the ones who defected. (laughs) Look at verse 72. This is incredible. To show the mercy... Promise to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. God's doing this because he's moved with pity for the needs of his people that he's pledged to rescue. That's why he's doing this. He remembers, not that he's forgotten, but that it means he's going to now act in a unique way in his covenant. God's mercy is the inspiration for this whole song and this whole text that we're going to see this morning. And that's because God isn't obligated to promise anything to us. And yet he makes these audacious promises. Like, I will bless all the nations through you. If you'll have so many descendants, you'll have, you know, the stars aren't sufficient to count them. And you'll always have a king reigning on the throne for David. How, how can he make these promises? Because 
He's merciful. And what's the goal of these promises? Like, what do they cash out in? Look at how he continues the song. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Do you remember why the Israelites said they needed to leave Egypt? It was to worship, right? To worship and serve God. They, they're owned by Him. In the book of Exodus is this question, who owns Israel? The end goal of our deliverance is not our ease. It's our worship and service of God. That we can be free to do that. Because that's what we were designed to do. So, the Holy Spirit loosens Zechariah's tongue to bless God for His merciful deliverance to Israel in the past. We saw His faithfulness to this old couple and now we see God's been this way before for hundreds of years to Israel the second verse of Zechariah's song looks to the future fulfillment of God's promises in this baby and you can tell there's a change here because if you look at verse 76 you read the first words and you child will be called so now we're, we've pivoted we're not looking back anymore we're looking at the child and looking to the future As we go through the second verse, I want you to notice how it uses a lot of the same words from the first verse. It's kind of a typical thing in songwriting, right? So I want you to notice how they're similar, but also notice maybe how they're different as well. Let's look at 76 through 79. It says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. It starts off in you child and actually it's it's harder to notice, but in the original language, it's the similar word used of describing David as a servant. So there's a there's a similarity there. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. We've heard about prophets before in the first verse. But now we we know that John is a unique prophet. Later on in chapter 7, Jesus says that John was more than a prophet. He was the Malachi 3 prophet, like the end of the prophets. Because he would be the one to announce Messiah. He says none is greater than John. Now what does he do as a prophet in 77? He gives knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. He himself is not the deliverer, right? John is really clear about that when he comes on the scene. But he gives knowledge of salvation. He tells people how it's going to work and what it's going to involve, especially in relationship to the forgiveness of sin. You notice that John's message is repentance. Repent and be baptized, right? We've already heard in the Gospel of Luke, because we cheated and went ahead, that Jesus claims to be able to forgive sin, right? And John is going to be the one to kind of announce that this is the, this is the deliverance. This is what it's going to look like and involve. Do you remember what he says when he sees Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John would give knowledge of salvation. It's knowledge that we're talking about now, that we have because of people like John. And now, 
look at what's motivating God to do this, to send this special child and to eventually send, send the Messiah. It's the same thing that motivated him to make audacious promises to the people in the Old Testament. Look at 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Here is mercy again. It's what underlies, it's what's underneath the arrival of John the Baptist. Is that God shows pity. That he gives people who don't deserve another chance, another chance. And he keeps revealing and keeps manifesting to the point of sending his own son. The tender mercy of our God is what's motivating and driving even this future fulfillment like it did the past. And notice what the mercy of God does. It sends the sunrise. It says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. God visits his people again in verse 2. But it's described as a sunrise. When Jesus was sent to earth, it signaled the dawn of God's kingdom on the earth. God's visiting mercy is like the sunrise after a long, painful, cold, dark wait. It's finally here. Have you ever had to wait for a sunrise? I was a, had the distinct privilege of being a security guard on the midnight shift. And I can tell you, waiting for sunrise was a big deal. But this, this sunrise that we kind of are so familiar with, right? It's just so daily, it's so normal, it's so routine. This, is, this kind of light that he's talking about here is different. It says, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. This is the light when you're lost in the woods and you don't know where you are. And it's pitch black. And you see the flickering of a flashlight through trees of the search party. This is the light when you're kidnapped and you're put in a cell. And then one day you hear a commotion and the the door cracks open and the light streams through. This is the light of of life-saving surgery and waking up from it. That's what this light is. This isn't common light. This is desperately needed light. This is being delivered from the hand of your enemy in verse 1, but on a grand scale. This is being delivered from the darkness of sin and Satan and all of its consequences that you and I deserve. That's what this light is. This is the light of Messiah. And you can see the merciful heart of God even in how he assigned Israel to do its job in the beginning. It had to do with being a light. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7 says, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now we know that the light of Israel flickered and failed in a way. And so, and yet the people of Israel were the vehicle by which the light of the world would come. That John and his gospel 
says in him or Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's why Luke describes salvation as Paul is talking to Agrippa in Acts 26 as the opening of their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in me. This is the saving light of Messiah finally, finally coming. This light not only defeats the darkness, but he says it guides our feet into the way of peace. It's a comprehensive light. It's a light to walk in. Because God serves as a deliverer and a guide. In the same way that in the first verse they were delivered to serve with righteousness and holiness, the messianic light leads God's people and we follow it with joy. Guided by the Holy Spirit. Made children of light. This is quite the picture of future fulfillment of God's promises. Did you notice what is so similar between verse 1 of Zechariah's song and verse 2? Visitation. Child, servant. Salvation. Prophet. Save from enemies. Mercy. Save to serve. You know why he's recycling all of this terminology? To show us that God delivers in a consistent way. God goes about his work in the past, how he goes about his work in the present and in the future. But there are differences between these verses because the coming of a temporary deliverer is different than the coming of Messiah. There is something unique about God becoming man. That all of the shadows of the Old Testament point to the one substance of Christ. This is the one in whom all of the promises dovetail and fold into this one man. I mean, talk about God keeping it simple for us. Showing us the fulfillment of His Word. This is the true prophet, the true priest, the true king. Everything that has come before has echoed His name. And this is not short term. This is forever long salvation that He provides in the overcoming of His enemies and bringing this full salvation It's a beautiful song to see God's consistent work and and salvation and to see the uniqueness of this moment that Zechariah recognizes. Our passage closes in verse 80. It's more functional in purpose. It says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is a bridge verse to prepare us to meet a fully grown raving prophet out of the wilderness in chapter 3. But its, all, its purpose is also to clear the stage, right? Because of the Christ child who'd be coming in verse 2. What's the point of all this? So an old couple has a baby and there's a song that has two verses. and what? Well, let's revisit them briefly. The retelling of John's birth showed us God's great mercy fulfilled his promise to that old couple, right? The first verse of Zechariah's song blessed God for his great mercy in fulfilling his promise in the past to raise up the Davidic king. The second verse of Zechariah's song prophesied that God's great mercy would fulfill his promise in the future by using this baby John to prepare the way for Messiah. God's mercy to fulfill his promise in the present and in the past and in the future is the point of our section. 
So what does it mean? It means this. We can wait with hope because God mercifully fulfills His promises through Christ. Do you remember my first question to you about waiting with hope and how we do that? How do we wait with confidence? How can we wait in a hopeful way? It's because God mercifully fulfills His promises in Christ. And I want to break this down into three implications this morning to show how this affects us. First, we can wait with confident hope because we know God's motive is merciful. We know God's motive is merciful. The foundation of all that God does and when He interacts with human beings is mercy. From the time we get a breath in the morning to the times that he teaches us and instructs us and encourages us and uses other people to minister to us or, or steps in and intervenes and reveals something to us that we need to know. All of it is mercy. It's stunning in a passage that covers so much ground. I mean, think about this. This goes back to Abraham. It goes to Zechariah and Elizabeth. It goes forward to the Messiah. And what's the theme all along of why God is doing this? It's because he's merciful. God's mercy moves him to deliver his people again and again and again. And as you wrestle with your station in life, as you're maybe in a plentiful season of faith and blessing, or you're grieving losses that feel irreplaceable, as you consider the meaning of Advent, see God in his great mercy. That he will be who he is all the time. The past, the present, the future, it doesn't matter. God is the same. He moves with pity towards His people. He's always willing to redeem and step in and do what's necessary to save. Always. That's what's marked His actions throughout this whole text and what will mark His actions with His people forever. We will have a constant river of getting what we do not deserve from the character of God. And you cannot look at yourself long enough to find a reason for this mercy. But as soon as you look to Him, you see why He's doing it. Because He's just this way. His mercy is great and consistent and steady. This is how God was. This is how God is. And this is how God will be. As we wait, we can be tempted to be suspect towards God's motives. And Satan knows the power of this, doesn't he? To call into question the goodness of God or the generosity of God. He's done it since the garden, every day since. Now he's going to pull the rug out from under you. He's probably forgotten about you. He's unconcerned and uninvolved. You've screwed up enough, don't you think? I mean, these these are the lines, right, that... That, that we hear about the question God's motive. But the greatest indication of how God will act is how God has acted in the past. God never stops being good or merciful. It is His trademark. It is who He is. See God in His mercy. Number two, we can wait with confident hope because God fulfills His promises. Not many things are certain in life. But the promises of God are certain. And God has made promises to every person here, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. So we would be wise to seek out and to search out those promises. They are scheduled and true things. 
We watched him fulfill his promise to this old couple, didn't we? Check mark by check mark. He's done this for thousands of years. And the thing for Zechariah and Elizabeth that was future that they were trusting in, we now is in the category of our past, right? We saw it. God did it. John the Baptist did become the preparer. He did go out and prepare the way. Jesus did come. He did live. He did save. He died for the forgiveness of our sin. He was raised to life. He was ascended and he's coming again. This is a part of what he had to trust in the future. We can now see and say, Zechariah was right to confidently hope and trust in God. If you're struggling to believe an existing promise, consider the track record of the Lord Jesus. Do an inventory of your daily reading in Scripture. Even consider the present, how he's convicting you of sin, of how he's helping you to love the irritating person who lives next to you, or how he's uh, showing you things through his word, allowing you to delight in his glory. These are not small things. These are supernatural interventions that evidence his work in our life. Perhaps you are looking at the future, and for whatever reason, you see only dark clouds. I love Zechariah's song because of how confident, confident it is, even though his life was going to be hard. Think about it. This guy just had a baby. And he's an old man. And she's an old woman. He'd see this boy off to the wilderness. Who knows if he lived long enough? Probably not. But John's life wasn't exactly joyful alone, right? He was imprisoned and executed. And yet, Zechariah still has this confident hope. If you're struggling to have hope, remember that this song of confident hope came out of the lips of a doubter who had just been silenced for ten months. In the beginning, Zechariah couldn't even believe that he and Elizabeth were going to have a baby, for goodness sakes. And now he's singing confident that this baby is actually the one and only preparer for the Messiah who would come to deliver his people. How in the world does Zechariah go from being this doubter to being someone who trusts in this future promise? To being someone who's leaning and reliant and expectant? God has worked in him. God has given him faith. Past doubt does not exclude the possibility of present trust. Plant the mustard seed in the ground. You might do it shaking your head. But there is reason to have confident hope. We do not need to fear what is ahead. What's ahead for us is God doing what he said, motivated by mercy. That's in the forecast for all of us. In your medical trial, God will fulfill his promise and be merciful. In your holiday stresses, God will fulfill his promise and be merciful. In our church's transition, God will fulfill his promise and be merciful. In a contentious election year upcoming, God will do what he said. He will fulfill his promise and he will be merciful. Whatever comes at us next year, we can know that. Anxiety is often the result of meditating on a growing list of things that you don't know and can't do anything about. Isn't it odd how much time and energy... You know, we devote to thinking about things totally out of our control. 
We try to live in the future through anticipation. Confident hope is not like built on successful projections as to what's going to happen in the future. It's, it's deciding to meditate and dwell on the things that you can know and be assured of. So what would happen if you devoted more of your mental space to focus on things that you could actually be confident of? Maybe there's a specific promise of God that you need to invest in and, and, and meditate on and think on that would help you to wait with confident hope. Maybe it's God's presence. Maybe it's God's generosity. Maybe it's his rescue. The great news is from Luke is that the things you really need to know, you already know. So think on things that are sure, not on things that you can't know. Number three, we can wait with confident hope by looking to Jesus. Like I said earlier, God has made it simple for us, and he's decided to fulfill all of his promises, to demonstrate his great mercy through a person. This is the premier demonstration. One look at Jesus, and you will see the powerful king who will come and deliver us from every enemy, physical and spiritual. You'll see the everlasting king of David and the, the, the promise to Abraham that how he would be a blessing to the world. It makes sense when you look at Jesus. Jesus is the one who visited on high, who brought light to our darkness. And the simple act of turning to Jesus and considering all that he is and all that he has done will help you to wait with hope because you're waiting for him. Earlier I said, I think to think about what you can know, and now I'm telling you, think about who you will see when he returns. Let's let Jesus have the last word from John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Some of the final words of Scripture in the book of Revelation are the voice of Jesus saying, Surely I am coming soon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have options when it comes to waiting and how we wait. And so we praise you and thank you that you have laid out this clear case that you are merciful and you do what you say. And that activity happens through the ministry and the person of Jesus. God, help us to insist on focusing on that. Sure things, certain things, stable things, determined things. God, I pray for those who are anxious here this morning. The holidays can be nuts for some of us. And I pray that you would grant perspective. That you would do what you do when you visit your people and step in and deliver. And convince us of things that our hearts want to doubt. Change the way that we think and approach this holiday season. Help us to rejoice and to delight And the opportunity we have to praise you for this, this bizarre thing that you did in coming to earth. 
and living to tell other people about it. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the consistent fulfillment of your word. And we thank you for Jesus, who will one day return for his bride. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.